Hi! Hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for new Catholics, non-Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little. I'm an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. See, it began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? Well, I was stumped and began a journey looking to find that answer. Looking into the early church, the writings of the early church fathers, the history of the canon of the Bible, the history of Christianity, the forms of, of worship and how those evolved, and why some churches worshipped in one way and other Christian churches worshipped in a completely different way. And it was then when I began to encounter the Catholic Church and read from actual Catholic sources what Catholics actually believed that I realized what I thought I knew about the Catholic faith and the Catholic Church was based in large part on misinformation and honestly, more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that gap, the gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week's episode is an absolutely fantastic one. I'm so pleased to bring you his grand return to the show after many, many episodes. Uh, A miss, Dr. Dennis McNamara talking about how to make the Mass great. I'm one of Dr. McNamara's biggest fans. I think he's got the Liturgy Guys podcast and does some fantastic work there. And we're back talking about Pope Francis's most recent motu proprio, which talks about the traditional form of the Mass, the, the Latin Mass, the extraordinary form of the Mass, and and, and the, these, these two streams of the Mass and how we reconcile those, how we wrestle with those, and what does it mean? We're talking about all of that and how we can make the Mass, just the Mass in general, great again what it is and how we receive that and celebrate that and, and take part in that and all those kinds of things. It's a fantastic episode which which mines very deeply from the traditions of the, of the church and, and, and talks about how to make those things accessible and real and true and faithful to the intentions of, of all of these different aspects of, of that tradition. I think I'm rambling now, but it's a, a great episode. It's lots of fun, really deep, liturgical, theological. It's all those fantastic things with a really healthy dose of, of, of self-deprecating humor and some really great stories, analogies, and, and a lot of fun in there. And, and some, some Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as well, which, which gets a little bit weird at the end. It's always scared me, kind of, as a book and a movie, honestly, but there it is. If you like this show and want to support it, let me ask you for one thing, guys. Consider becoming a, a patron of this show or a one-time donor. I'll tell you what, guys, this show is not my full-time job. It's, it's not. It takes a lot of time to do, and your, your funding, your underpinning of this show makes that time possible. It's harder and harder these days to, to do this thing. We have a very busy, young family, lots of commitments at the parish now increasing as well, and... Really, the support that I get from you guys makes this thing even doable in the first place. So please head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or paypal.me slash cordialcatholic for a one-time donation. And please do consider supporting this show in whatever way you can because that really helps to keep this thing going and growing. You have my absolute thanks for, for blessing this thing with, with your support. Leaving a rating or review also on Apple Podcasts, if you can write a review, helps to push this podcast out to new people as well. And I'm grateful for anybody who can leave a review on this show and write something too, because that helps to spread this message. And that's the whole point and and purpose of this thing. 
right? Thanks, guys. And now, without any further ado, my fantastic conversation with the fantastic Dr. Dennis McNamara. So pleased to have him back. Please listen and enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Just a reminder, if you are listening on podcasts, we're on YouTube at youtube.com slash thecordialcatholic. If you're watching us on YouTube, we're also on podcasts. Everywhere fine podcasts are found. We are there. We're in for a a thriller of an episode, uh, I'm sure. I'm joined by none other than Dr. Dennis McNamara. He is Associate Professor and Executive Director of the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Uh, he is uh, a, a podcaster as well, one of the Liturgy Guys on one of my favorite, if not my favorite podcast, the Liturgy Guys podcast. And he's our guest this week. Dennis, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show and and Hello. Well, my pleasure. Happy to be with the most cordial Catholic I know. You have this built-in cheerfulness in your voice that's so nice to listen to. I think it's just Canadian is Canadian. Well, I'll take it. It's what's built into it. (laughs) But thank you. I appreciate that. I I should say, when I had Jimmy Aiken on the show, I said that his podcast was my favorite podcast, his Mysterious World podcast, which I love. You also told some other guests that that they were the nicest guests on all all podcasts. So uh, I'm trying to be extra nice so I can beat out John Bergsma. But I don't think he's he's nicer than I am. He's a really nice guy, Dennis. (laughs) He's really nice. Everybody says this about him. I believe it, yeah. You're okay. You're pretty nice, I think. Yeah, I'll I'll take second or third place to him. That's fine. Sure, okay. And a really good podcast, too. A really good podcast. So listen, we're here to talk about the Mass. And I want to give a little bit of a, an overview of where we're going here. We're talking about the, the uh, Pope Francis put out this uh, motu proprio, mm-hmm. uh, practicing my Latin there badly, which shook up a lot of people in the church about how the Mass is celebrated, what kind of Masses we can celebrate. So I want to do a little kind of overview of this and then talk about how we can make the Mass great. So I think it'll be a lot of fun. So I want to start at the beginning here. This this motu proprio that Pope Francis released. Can we talk about what that was? What its intentions were? What is a motu mo, proprio? <laughs> what is yeah. it? Let's let's start there and what and what this one particular one was because I know uh, the Holy Father says a lot of things on airplanes. He mm-hmm. does interviews. This is different than that, though. This is different than an interview on an airplane, right? Right. There are all kinds of documents that the church can put out and they have different levels of authority. So an an apostolic constitution, so, you know, Vatican II, voted on by the bishops, approved by the Pope, that is the most supreme authority. A motu proprio is an insertion into law. So it's really a juridical, legal thing. And it's put in by the Pope's own authority. That's by nature, his own authority. It doesn't mean, though, that he just woke up one morning and said, this is what I want to do. Usually he takes a lot of time. Bishops are writing saying, we need help with this. Could you change this? This is outmoded. He takes consultations. And so, uh, Summorum Pontificum, which is the motu proprio that Benedict put out that eased the restrictions on the extraordinary form, in fact, created the phrase extraordinary form, was also motu proprio. So, one pope changes the law, the next pope changes the law, and it's within their authority to do so. Okay. And in this particular one, the, the kind of shook up it came out on a Friday. Uh, came out on a Friday afternoon, which is usually when bad news stories come out. Typically, in, at least in in America and in, in North America, at least that's the trend. And kind of shook up um, 
Catholic Twitter, certainly, and Catholic press was, was kind of a buzz with this. It kind of came out of nowhere. And what did it do? Because what it did was kind of, in these camps, a bit shocking. What, what, did, it, what did it do? Well, what he said was he was trying to preserve the unity of the church, especially in her liturgical celebration. And it put some, my, I would say relatively minor, although many people think they're major restrictions on the use of the extraordinary form, basically brought it back almost to the condition that it was before Pope Benedict gave its uh, increased freedom. But it made some very quite important claims that the, the current mass, what we call the ordinary form, is the singular expression of the Lex Arandi of the church. That's a major claim. and uh, But basically what he said is, I see a bunch of people celebrating the extraordinary form and some people celebrating the ordinary form, and it was never meant to have two parallel streams. I'm worried about the unity of the church being split. And so I'm going to return some limitations on the extraordinary form back to the bishops, which is traditionally where it was, and also limit its use in, in some ways. So there's the theological import, and then you can talk about the document itself. And was it kind? Was it loving? Was it sloppy? <laughs> a lot of things like that. And that's uh, that's a different question. Yeah, yeah. I certainly, uh, um, I had no problem saying that I'm not sure what the manner in which it was delivered. Uh, I'm not the Holy Father. I don't have the insight that he has over the whole church, or or I'm not guided in the Holy Spirit in the same way by any of the imagination. I felt like it was a little bit kind of maybe it could have been could have been done differently, but it, it is what it is. I don't have I don't have his vision of the church for one thing, but. Let's talk about the the Latin Mass, the extraordinary form, and the ordinary form. I, I think when a lot of Catholics or, or those listening to this show who are sometimes non-Catholic or looking into the Catholic Church or new Catholics, you say the Mass and they think of well, there's one Mass, there's one universal Mass across the whole world celebrated in, in one in one form. That's not the case. How did it come about that there was this extraordinary form of the Mass? And because and, you know, Pope Benedict, you mentioned kind of. Uh, coined that phrase and kind of mm -hmm. be began this uh, or renewed or, or reestablished this other form of the mass. How did that all come about? Like what was happening there? Because some Catholics think this is just one mass, right? But well, there is just one mass. Primarily, it's the sending of the sacrifice of Christ to the Father done by Christ. Uh, you know, the catechism says the liturgy is the participation of the people of God in the work of God. And the work of God is Christ offering and pleading. And we join in that prayer on earth. So there's one mass. Now, there's different ways to sacramentalize that mass. So it's all happening invisibly in heaven. How do we see it? Well, there have been Melkites that do it their way and Coptics that do it their way and Orthodox and Byzantine. So the question is, which form best sacramentalizes or make noble, makes noble to the people the reality that's already happening in heaven? And so there was the Roman Missal, the Roman Mass that has its origins you know, way back in the first centuries. And it had a pretty consistent thing, but it had changes over time too. And you find there were some Gallican things from France that came in. There were some Roman things that were specific to Rome that nonetheless became universal. Saints people in Germany never heard of, and yet they were on the universal calendar. So, so let's get some, some of those obscure saints off. So there were little changes over time. In fact, the 1962 Missal was had changes by John the 23rd. He added some new saints and he took out some words that had the word perfidious Jews in it. So he took that out and didn't think that was very kind. Um, and so there have always been revisions of the Missal. Now what get people worked up is that after the Second Vatican Council, there was a revision of the Missal that not only made little revisions, but actually created new things new Eucharistic prayers, translation wasn't very accurate. There were all kinds of options that were routinely abused. And I think what people felt like, this is not the same mass as before. Mm 
uh, at least not the same sacramental outward expression as before. Because I don't think too many people in, at Trent in 1570 said, oh, the missile from yesterday is, is so different from the missile of 1570. You know, they didn't have priests, clowns, and balloons and stuff. Um, but at, in the 1970s, there, things went berserk, you know, and so ordinary form somehow seemed to be not the same expression to a lot of people. Uh, yeah. And I think Pope Benedict wanted the riches of the, um, the 1962 missile to come alive again so that the people who forgot where it came from could learn. And he talked about the mutual enrichment, that the, the, the riches of the unreformed liturgy would inform the reformed liturgy, and then people would learn where it came from, and that those two things would eventually become one. He didn't say that, and he didn't say five years, ten years, hundred years. I think Francis's concern is they're not becoming one. They're two parallel streams, and that could lead to a danger. Right, right. So the whole idea with the renewal or or the the reestablishment, I don't know the right word, of the of the pre-1960, like the, the pre-Vatican II Mass, was the idea of enriching the Mass in general, right? It wasn't like to establish these two two kind of kinds of masses. It was to to hope that those beautiful things that were lost after Vatican II would kind of be reincorporated into ordinary liturgies, right? Right. And what Vatican II itself wanted to do was bring out the nature of the liturgy. So if there were accretions that happened over time that were not good, you take them out. That's the famous line about unnecessary repetitions. If there were things that dropped over time, like proclaiming the gospel to the people in their own language, (laughs) that you should bring it back, right? So when liturgical scholarship really kicked in in the 20th century, they realized, oh, the missile as it exists is did not come down from God by angels. It has a human history, you know, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But here's a good example. So the low mass before Vatican II was a quiet mass. The priest said nothing out loud. The people did not respond. Nothing was sung. And basically in the pews, you would watch the priest say mass. He would read the scriptures to himself in Latin quietly, and nothing was said out loud. And the reason it was is because in the Middle Ages, they developed the private mass. And you'd have a monastery full of monks, and they'd be altar next to altar, six feet away from each other. There's no congregation. So they had to whisper the mass because there's a guy on the left and a guy on his right doing the same thing. And what happens, the low mass or the rubrics of the private mass, and that became the norm for 90% of people who went to mass before Vatican II, that they didn't say anything. They didn't sing anything. They didn't respond. And in the 20th century, they started increasing permissions to answer the priest, but people weren't doing it. So what the, what many people are worried about, and I imagine Pope Francis, because he's old enough to remember that time, was people didn't sing. They didn't respond. And they didn't actually participate uh, externally as they should. And so the insights of Vatican II are not balloons and clown masses and guitars and sitting on the floor and cushions. <laughs> they <laughs> respond when the priest says, Lord be with you and with your spirit. Like that's pretty basic stuff. And if a low mass becomes the norm again in the in the extraordinary form world, it's kind of missing the great insights that people had. And, I, and I'm saying this as a guy with cred, street cred <laughs> for the tratty world. I was going to the extraordinary form in 1985, uh, which is a long time ago, and I go often myself. So I'm not opposed to it. In fact, I love it. But if you're careful about your scholarship, you realize, yeah. When the priest turns around and says, Arate fratres, pray rather than my sacrifice and yours be acceptable, and nobody answers, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands, something's not right. And so we are going to find out what's the nature of the liturgy, what was good about the extraordinary form, what was weak about it, what's good about the ordinary form, what's weak about it, and then get back to the core of things. 
Yeah, I guess the, I mean, the biggest problem, and I've had a number of guests talking about Vatican II, and you guys on your show did a fantastic deep dive into the documents of Vatican II in terms of the liturgy, and it was fantastic. And I guess the, the problem is the abuses that happened to Vatican II, right? Following some of those reforms, I mean, it was never, as you say, meant, meant to produce these clown masses or these massive guitar masses or these kind of folky masses. That wasn't the intention of any of the, the reforms of the mass, of the liturgy. But this happens, and so the response is, well, let's bring back the old form of the Mass. And I guess I guess the nice thing about, about Francis's uh, motu proprio is we don't have to imagine his intentions, because he's quite clear in spelling them mm-hmm. out, right? It's that there are, there are abuses happening in both forms of the Mass, there, I think he says, right? In the ordinary form, there's abuses taking place. But there's also this growing sense in the, in the traditional Latin Mass community of this division between you know this is the right way of doing it and this is the wrong way and that's growing and that's and that's causing hostility and he says neither of these things are good and neither are the intention i don't think of any of anybody in the church right <laughs> clown masses and, and the abuses in the ordinary form aren't the intention of vatican II. and this div- divisive community of the latin mass being the only way to do it wasn't the intention of benedict in 2007 right so neither right. of these things are i've, I've reached their aims as intended, yeah. right? And I don't want to say every Latin mass community is divisive. Yeah, 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 no. I would go every Sunday, and yeah. some Sundays I wouldn't. I'd go to the ordinary form. And great families, they're very nice. You have coffee and donuts, and the servers are very good, and the choir members are awesome. And they're not out there complaining about Vatican II yeah, and yeah. griping about the Pope. So there are people like that. I'm not going to say there aren't, because every movement has its fringe. Yeah. Um, I don't know who was telling Pope Francis that this was a major source of division in the life of the church. Individually, but I think you have to take the meta high level narrative and say, even if individual people aren't bitter and complaining, how long and is it good to have two parallel liturgical streams that never meet? So to me, it's a goal to find the nature of the liturgy itself and a silent mass where nobody answers the priest and the priest doesn't proclaim the gospel out loud. Something's wrong, right? They do it again, right? In English, a second time. But the first time they have servers and processions and candles and like scriptures proclaimed by the priest to himself quietly. The second time he turns around and sort of reads it out of a little book. It's not liturgically proclaimed. It's just translated. So um, there there are problems with the unreformed ordinary form that needed to be addressed, but it didn't have to boomerang into the kookiness of the 70s or the we're around the table of the Lord kind of dining room, uh, living room of God model of liturgy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I shouldn't, I don't mean to disparage anybody in the Latin mass community either. I do mean more of a meta view. Like this is dividing this, the church in a sense that there, there's these two streams in, what, in what's happening here. Let's, let's talk about then the, this idea that, because I think what, what you've, you've mentioned is that Francis is trying to get at kind of bringing those two streams back together in a sense, right? I don't think he says outright, uh, maybe I'm wrong, that the Latin Mass is, is no longer going to be celebrated or, or allowed in, in you know, two years after this, this kind of period of discernment ends. I don't think he said that yet that I know of, but the intention clearly is to, to do, I think, what Benedict intended originally was that, to hope that the... The, the great traditions that are in the the extraordinary form liturgy begin to inform the, the ordinary form in a real meaningful sense, right? Is, am I getting that right? Is that kind of the intention of this whole thing? Well, it's hard to know. He didn't say that. He talked about mutual enrichment, right? So that's where we grow, this idea grows from. He said the saints, the new saints who have been canonized since 1962 have to be added right. to the missal. 
And that would be a reform of the 62 missile. So in a way that would enrich the extraordinary form. Or he said, you can proclaim the gospel in the vernacular without doing it in Latin first. And that's not going to upset too many people because you can't hear the priest say it in Latin anyway to low mass. Um, so these were permissions that were allowing the extraordinary form to breathe a little bit, to come out of the great clamps of the, the post-trend uh, era. And on the other hand, someone who goes to the ordinary form where people take everything sort of casually, which strangely enough is the model of the low mass before Vatican II. No singing, minimum processions, minimum vestments. Maybe there's a hymn at the beginning and the hymn at the end, uh, but they're not singing the parts of the mass, for instance. So can you get the great solemnity and the divinity of God and the majesty of God brought into the ordinary form? And can you get the proper and accurate participation of the people in the uh, extraordinary form. And I think that's what mutual enrichment means. It's interesting. In, in the 50s, Pius XII gave permission, 1958, Pius XII gave permission to answer the priest in Latin, but answer the priest at Conspiratu Duo out loud and to say the whole, our father with the priest. But when you go to the extraordinary form now, people don't do it because they're using a missile from 1940 or 1930. And they don't even have the... Um, the permissions given in the 62 missile itself to answer or to, to the, the, the privileging of high mass. So um, we have to see these things not as enemies, but as two friends who are going to have a nice conversation and come to some agreement at the end. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> Over a few drinks or something. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, take time. I think that, and you can correct me, correct me if I'm wrong because you're a regular attender and I've attended Latin mass a number of times. Myself and I and I love it and I'm I'm drawn to it in the sense that it is more it is more solemn it is often more beautiful you have Gregorian chant sometimes if you can get a really nice Gregorian choirs I mean it's it's heavenly right it really <laughs> is something else and there's the, the the smells and the bells and the the physicality of the Catholic faith that I think a lot of converts really yearn for when they're becoming Catholic like I mean. That was what drew me in, thinking of the mass more like that. And I, I get to my local parish, and it's 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 old balding men playing guitars, really yeah. off key. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, they 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 learned how to play guitar seventy years ago, and they haven't really improved since then. Right. And it, it it's it was it's terrible. So I understand the longing for the Latin mass. It, it's just I think objectively more in usually more beautiful, right? More solemn, more like what mass I think is we, we imagine it, it to be. Right. And part of the reason that happens is because people take a lot of care with it. I mean, yeah. people who love the extraordinary yeah. form are very intentional. Ask somebody who was around in 1957 and father came in in a wrinkled, crummy, chasuble uh, with the cheapest altar that was wood painted to look like marble. And the altar itself was one square foot of the altar stone. And he raced through the mass in the, in the low mass and you couldn't understand a word. And if he committed a liturgical abuse, nobody could tell because it was quiet and it was over in 20 minutes. There were liturgical abuses before Vatican II. It's just they weren't quite so loud and they weren't quite so obvious. <laughs> so, you know, coming back to the rules, can you celebrate the ordinary form, which I guess that term doesn't exist anymore? The Missal of, you know, John Paul II and the Missal of Paul VI. Yeah, absolutely. The current books say the first option for music is the Graduale Romanum, which is the great inherited chant uh, of the church. Uh, you can still say Mass, Adorantum, meaning facing east. Uh, you can still have a beautiful vestment made of silk. You can have servers and cassock and surplices carrying carriage lamps around. You can have the best incense in the world. You can have a priest who sings everything. And 
Colonel Ratzinger himself said this before he was Pope, that if you use the current books, Adorantum in Latin with good servers, it would take a scholar of significant sophistication to even know that the books had been changed. And I think that's how you have a unity and continuity from one reform to another. And the problem is it's not celebrated as it should be. Yeah, so it is. So it is possible to have that beauty that we long for—the the smells and the bells and the physicality—in in what we'd call the ordinary form of the mass. That that is possible. Simply possible. Those are the norms of the mass that are in the books. <laughs> if you do the mass as it says, um, then it will be that. And that's what Pope John Paul said too. Even as he gave permission to use the extraordinary form and, and made it quite. Uh, uh, more more um, present to people. He constantly said, Vatican II cannot be ignored. If we celebrate the Mass as it's supposed to be celebrated, people won't feel the need to flee to some safety of the pre-reformed missile. And this is this is what happens. It's sort of politically, too. You know, people pull things too far, like mask mandates or shots or whatever, and then they say, no, I'm never wearing a mask again. And you should just said, Let's talk about this. Let's find out the nature of it and not have people boomerang into reactionary positions. Oh, it's really interesting. And I hadn't thought of what you mentioned before, the, the abuses of the, the, the pre-Vatican II Mass, right? The idea that it, it, it comes down to care of how you're celebrating it, that really, because you can do both badly. And, and I think you're absolutely right, right? The people that I know that are, in, are, are really involved in the Latin Mass communities here are those who take really intentional care to, to practice their, their faith and to celebrate saints feast days and the priests are the ones that are are careful to to purchase those really beautiful vestments and to and uh, right and and the the best incense which i know i know what your favorite kind, kind is <laughs> somalian frankincense yes yeah. Yeah. right they 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 go to the, they go that distance right and it takes too some effort to to learn uh, how to celebrate the extraordinary form of the mass right and so so the the priests that are celebrating that, those people that are going there are the ones that are taking the time to do that really well and really properly. So if we can import that same kind of attention to to the rubrics and and celebrating the mass in its its highest form mm-hmm. in in the ordinary mass, right? We we can achieve uh, a lot of that beauty that that we see, right? Or, we, or yes. that we seek. There are people who claim that the reform of the book was so so brutal that it's never going to be the same thing. I mean, certain things are just gone and they're never coming back. Uh, there's a group of, there's different models of people who want to do whatever they want to do related to liturgy. One of them is called the reform of the reform, which says that Vatican II is valid. The books, we use the books we have, but if we had the chance, we would rework the book to, to say some of the quick uh, decisions that were made in 1969, maybe over the span of a half century now, could be reconsidered. We could bring back certain things. And so that's a healthy way to say, okay, I love the church. We've had some time and we're going to reconsider. But when you start saying Vatican II is the false church or from the devil, then you have to start saying, okay. And that's one of the things Pope Francis wants in Traditionis Custodis is that the bishops see that if there are people using the extraordinary form, that they don't deny the validity of Vatican II, which is pretty important thing for anyone, ordinary form or extraordinary form. If you doubt Vatican II, then you have bigger problems because then you'd have to say the Holy Spirit did not guide these and uh, they're no longer the normal teaching authority of the church. 
Yeah, and I, I, there is that certainly out there. I mean, I'm, 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 I put things out here on on the internet for people to see and comment on, and there definitely is that that a current sometimes these days of that. I have a good friend Austin Suggs who has a a Protestant went to a Latin mass kind of by accident and put his foot into a to a debate he had no idea what was going on. Uh, just went to um, uh, a mass and actually at St. John Cantius in Chicago, which I know that you love uh, or are familiar with at least. Beautiful yeah. uh, church down there. By accident, just kind of stepped into this debate of, well, oh, you went to a Latin mass. Well, you have to go to the other, another kind of mass as well. And so he tried to, and he said it was, the experience was just so shocking because it was so, you know, one was a very, took things very seriously in, in, the, in the Latin mass. And the other church he went to down, down the block was very easygoing and kind of in casual. And, mm-hmm. and at, he said the difference was very shocking. And then, of course, he ignited a firestorm on his YouTube channel when he tried to comment on both yeah. of those things and, and compare right. them. And he had no idea what he was getting into. But there, there is that, that, that difference, right, in, in how seriously it's taken between those who go there. And in terms of, I know you, you're very big on participation in the Mass and that being an important thing. And we're meant to participate, not meant to just be casual recipients or casual observers of the Mass, right? right? And... There, there's a funny, I don't know, undercurrent there because I think the, the folks that attend Latin Mass, they're going there very intentionally. Right? You you often choose those communities to go to, and you're taking part in a sense. Those who go to an ordinary form that maybe is is on the surface more participatory because you're saying more things and you're and you're more engaged in the vernacular. It's in it's in English, so you're more engaged just right from that. But but that can be maybe a lot less intentional. Like those that are there aren't 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 coming with the same spirit as those that intentionally mm-hmm. seek out the Latin math. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you know what the scholars before Vatican II said is we are matter and spirit. We're body and soul. So we have interior participation, which means we offer ourselves on the altar with Christ, so Christ can offer us to the Father, and we can participate in his life, death, and resurrection. But that that was not merely interior desire. It was actually involved the standing, the sitting, the singing, the kneeling, the speaking. And so what they saw before in the low mass was, sure, maybe you had a lot of intentionality, but a lot of people didn't. They would say, oh, well, that's the priest's job. I'm going to say the rosary. I'll read a pious book. And then, of course, Jansenism was this great sort of pseudo-Catholic heresy that people are unworthy to receive the Eucharist, so they defend God, and people would not go to communion at all. So you kind of have to imagine in 1948, you wake up, you've just had World War Two World War One, nuclear bombs, the French Revolution, Marxism, the decay of society, communism is officially atheist is running all over the world. And they're like, how do we stop this? Grace is the way we do it. We have mass every day of the year. Why aren't people being transformed by the grace? And then they started thinking, okay, well, let's look at the liturgy. It's still objectively real, but somehow it's not getting to uh, the people. We need interior participation. We need exterior participation. We have to teach them what liturgy is. We have to encourage them to offer themselves as a victim on the patent with the priest and participate in the ritual act of Christ's self-immolation to the Father, which is what the Mass is. There's a great, great book by Odo Kozl. I just taught it in class today called Das Christliche Kultmysterium. It means the Christian oh, cult yeah, mystery. Yeah, that one, yeah. yeah, I know. Everything sounds more forceful in German. But he says the liturgy should be numinous, meaning awe, mystery. You're about to face the ineffable God who has the power to make you not exist or exist. But fortunately, he's lovable. He's love itself, so he loves us. But nonetheless, all the power of God 
Christ in the second person is given to the church, and the church relives the life, death, resurrection, the passion at Mass through a rite. And if you participate in that rite, you participate in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and that's how you actually acquire salvation. I mean, it's always God's gift, but we actually participate in it. So I say active participation is becoming by doing. It's not just doing the singing, the standing, although that's a minimum. It's saying, yes, Father, through the through Jesus Christ, I give you my mind, my will, my heart to be sacrificed, to be a victim, to be made holy. That's what sacrifice means, sacrifice, to make holy. And if Mass is the thing you watch the priest do and say the rosary instead and don't receive communion and don't answer and don't enter into the, the awe and mystery and numinous quality of this act of Christ that's being done on your behalf for you and with you, then you are missing the boat, okay? So you see how this totally destroys the ordinary form and extraordinary form arguments, which is I like it quiet in Latin. I like it comfortable with guitars. If you're not actually asking the question, which one best allows me to participate as Christ participates at the right hand of the Father, then that's not the real question. Yeah, that's a that's such a... <laughs> That's a much better question. That's very well put. I love that. And I guess then the, the the next step becomes, well, yeah, where is that? And how can I make that possible? Because, gosh, you can go to an, an ordinary form of the Mass and it's really lousy, right? And you don't get any mm-hmm. of those, that you're not drawn into that mystery. You don't want to participate in any sense of the imagination. I have a, a very good friend of mine who, when I kind of was becoming Catholic, he was going down the Orthodox route. And we used to always talk about our different... Uh, uh, our journeys. And for him, it was the mystery drawing him into yeah. to becoming Orthodox because he said, look, I go to a Catholic mass and it's, it's guitars and it's really boring and there's no mystery there at all. It's all just, uh, you know, rubrics. And it's all kind of figured out and they're just saying these prayers and they know that they do this, this and this, and this happens and then they go home when they're done. Mm-hmm. And I had a hard time in some cases arguing with him because that's what you'd see in some cases. And right. it doesn't draw you into that mystery. Right. right. So I guess, to make the mass great, one of the things you have to first ask yourself is, how are you participating in it, and how can you do better with that, right? Yeah. And then you go to your priest and say, "Hey, hey, Father, make this better." <laughs> is that the next step? <laughs> Bring the incense well, in, turn around, say the that's part of Latin, like. You don't want it just to become ritualism, but one of the things that Odo Kozel points out when he calls it the Christ cult mystery, that mystery is the Greek word for sacrament. Mystery doesn't mean the things we don't know. Mystery is how the realities of heaven become knowable to us. Christ is the sacrament of the Father. He who sees me sees the Father. So if you want to show the mystery, that doesn't mean you make it obscure. It means you say, what is God like? Awesome. Tremendous. He's on the throne. That throne is described as covered in gems, surrounded by bowls of incense. His voice is like peals of thunder. How do you make the liturgy Make that mystery knowable to us so that you are moved to say, yes, you're God and I'm not. And I want what you have, Lord. (laughs) I want to receive you in the divine life. I want to enter into the Paschal mystery so that uh, I can rise with Christ as I enter into his death. I mean, if you really think about entering into the death of Christ, that means your intellect, your will, your finances, your job, your family, the things you love. You have to be ready to see them all go away. You have to be ready to be the subject of being despised and scandal if that's what God wants. I mean, it's really the death of self. And you put that all on the altar, and hopefully God won't ask for lots of suffering. Um, but to have that freedom to say whatever the Father wants, just as Christ did in the garden, 
that's the intensity of the self-offering at Mass. And then the surrounding of that, I used an example today. There's that moment in the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory where Willy Wonka opens the door and he starts singing, come with me and you'll see. Suddenly they have left the earth, right? The chocolate river is flowing. They're scooping whipped cream out of the mushrooms. They're eating gumdrops off the tree. What Guarbardini says is the church, the liturgy should be a, brim, a, a world brimming with supernatural life. How does the vestment look? How does the music sound? How does the incense smell? What does the building look like? What do the bindings of the books look like? What do the flooring of the aisle look like? If you celebrate your liturgy that way, then people will say, it has a sense of mystery, not because I don't know what it is, but it's because I am encountering what it really is, the fullness of the awe and majesty of God, who nonetheless loved us enough to bring him into his own majesty, not just to drag him down into our mediocrity. Oh, that's <laughs> that's so well said. So we should all picture Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when we're when we're at mass and trying to. Well, I think so. I I think the guy who wrote the Wizard of Oz must have read the Book of Revelation too, because there's the Emerald City on the Yellow Brick Road and this powerful figure. Of course, the Wizard of Oz is no good. Christ is good, and so our job is to encounter the things of heaven now, to be transformed by them, and that's what the mystery really is: participating in these spiritual realities that await us in our future, but doing them now and becoming like them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. So, so you see a quiet low mass may not help you do that. A noisy guitar banging Novus Ordo mass might not help you do that either. So yeah. So we're so we're asking the wrong questions in a sense a lot of the time. And I think that that's that's very well said. So what do we? I mean, how does then the the, the that guitar mass? I mean, what what do we begin to 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 change about that? Um, what what do we want to now? We're not all listening to the show liturgists going to run to our pastors and say, "Here, you got to fix this, this, and this." But I think we can begin to to crave that and to kind of bring that forward in a in a peaceable. <laughs> And I think, you know, reasonable way to, and certainly at least bring that to the attention of, of our priests and pastors, right? To say, hey, you know, what about this? So, so what are some of those whatabouts that we, that you think can inform, you know, the, the regular mass happening and maybe kind of an ugly, ugly church building sometimes <laughs> yeah. that we can do to elevate that, to, to bring in that mystery. I mean, incense, always with the incense, I think that'll... <laughs> That goes a I long know, way. Then people just, cough and they complain, yeah. and, you know. Listen, my I've I told a story before on the podcast, I think, but my my best mass experience ever was I had a this was this was pre pre COVID. I had a terrible terrible cold. Went to mass anyway because there was a, there was a mission, and the Franciscan friars of the rule were there giving a parish mission, and I was sick as a dog, but I had to go, and I've never experienced more incense in my life. Mm -hmm. It was just filling the church, and it was beautiful. And I was there stifling a cough in the back row. I couldn't even breathe the whole time, the whole hour of Mass. I couldn't even breathe. I was coughing. But it was, it was the best experience of Mass ever because it was, it was just elevated. And you know what? It was, it was a guitar, a guy playing a guitar who came with the, with the friars, but singing in, in you know, Gregorian chant with the guitar, guitar accompanying parts of it. And there were even some contemporary worship songs thrown in there, but... It was it was just from the piles of incense. Mm -hmm. I was dying, but it was just elevated that much more just from from that that well, one. I thing. found that so. incense actually kills the COVID virus. I read <laughs> yeah. read this somewhere. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. Okay. Well, here one of the ways to think about it is liturgy has a liturgical character, and if you've listened to the liturgy guys, you've heard me say this before. What is it? Liturgy is 
the action of Christ before the Father. The priest represents sacramentally the head of that body. The people are the members of that body. So the mystical body theology was crucially important to the reform of the liturgy because it wasn't just the people who are bored and they need to feel less bored. It was the people as baptized share in the priesthood of Christ as members. So they offer themselves and the world and their families and their friends through the headship of the priest, just as Christ offers all of our prayers through his headship to the Father. And so they have something to do at liturgy, and the priest asks for their help. I mean, there was a journal, now it's called Worship, but when it first came out from Collegeville, Minnesota, St. John's Abbey was called Orate Fratres. That was the name, and it's an imperative, and they're very clear about that. Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable. The priests, if you think about the Temple of Solomon, there's the Holy of Holies behind the veil, and it was scary business to go in there. And the, the high priest needed the prayers of the priest to, to not die at seeing the face of God. So to imagine the priest is asking for the help of the people who are also priests or also members of that body. And they say, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name. So they have a role that's not just, now I'm not bored because I'm singing a song I like. I am actually doing the work of Christ as a member of the mystical body. And that's the nature of liturgy. It's the voice of Christ to the Father made possible through the love of the Holy Spirit. And you have to be careful what you put on the lips of Christ. Because if it's not something where Christ would be saying at the right hand of the Father, it's probably not something you should be saying in church. If it's not managing to look something like the book of Revelation's vision of heaven, then it's probably not what your church should look like. If the chasuble doesn't look like the garment of salvation of Christ who took all of heaven and earth, all of creation on himself, glorified it and brought it back to the Father, then that chasuble is not heavenly. It's not eschatological. You know, the time after the fall is over. And so just to get that, start there. I don't always do what I like at liturgy. I do what the church asks me to do. If you're going to uh, golf lessons or piano lessons or training in the gym, you have to do what your teacher tells you. Oh, no, I, I want to bang the piano with my fist because that makes me feel included. <laughs> no, you have to do the scales. So this is an ascetic discipline, the liturgy. It's making you into it rather than you making it into you. Devotional prayer, on the other hand, do whatever you want, whatever your emotions are at that moment, whatever particular conditions you need. So people like Romano Gordini and others were saying liturgy is universal. It's guided by intellect. It has to be available to everyone. You have to conform to it, not it to you. And that's an expectation that most people don't have. Oh, I have to go to liturgy to feel good, or I get my one-on-one -on -one time with God, or I get my spiritual vitamin pill in the Eucharist, all of which is kind of true. But the real dignity of it is I get to act as a member of the mystical body of Christ. And the Eucharist is an act of the whole church because the church is Christ, head and members. Get that down. And then you say, well, what would the music of heaven sound like? If you think the job of the choir is to entertain the teenagers, which it never does, right? Let's be honest. The youth mass is never attractive to the youth. Or is it I'm opening the veil of the temple between heaven and earth, and I'm now hearing what the sound of the angels and saints singing at the throne of God sounds like? or the song of the Son to the Father and the song of the Father back to the Son made possible in the love of the Holy Spirit. Can I make that mystery, can I make that a mystery, that invisible, inaudible thing, can I now hear that on earth? Can I see that on earth? And then all the choices are, is this what's happening in heaven? 
is this what the garments of heaven, is this what the streets of heaven look like? Is this what the sounds of heaven look like, the smells of heaven? Can you imagine Christ going to the Father and saying, Father, 6.30 a.m., I don't really feel like singing to you. I'm going to come to the early Mass so I don't have to praise you for very long and I can <laughs> get my bit of the Father's love and then get out of here. No way, right? And so if your liturgy is like that or if your approach to the liturgy is like that, then learn what liturgy really really is yeah that's 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 very well said and i think that's there's a there's there's problems on all sides right because you i like what you say about the liturgy needing to be lining up with the book of revelation what's happening in heaven right that's kind of the goal and then we're acting as as christ with the father right and that's 6 30 a.m mass yeah we've all had the experience right then that's that's not how it should be we've also seen it with say the youth mass or i can think of a mass i wrote once a very very ranty blog article that I maybe shouldn't have written, but I was really incensed because I went to a liturgy. I went to a mass. Uh, I was staying at a, a, a relative's house and went to a mass at a town for, and just the amount of abuses that happened, I could have written a, a, right, a, a grocery list of the abuses that happened. And it was all in the name of making it more accessible for the kids that were there and for the teens that were there and for, you know, whomever wanted certain things. And there were so many ridiculous innovations happening in this mass. And, and <laughs> I think what incensed me the most, Dennis, was when, so there was a baptism taking place in this mass and and the priest prefaced it by saying, well, I got to say all these things, but, you know, basically what I mean is this. And, well, mm-hmm. here I go. And I thought, and I thought, what a way to to welcome people into the faith by saying, "Well, here's what I mean, and here's the basic things, but we're just going to say the rest of it and just I'm not going to mean it, but here's what I really mean." Right. And right. I thought, no, <laughs> you you don't want to set the bar as low as possible when you're ent- welcoming somebody into the community of, of of Christ, right? It was so it was so upsetting to me yeah. as a liturgist at at heart, but. Right, you see those kind of abuses taking place, right? We're making the mass more accessible for people, but then that 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 cheapens it, right? The guy, yeah. I can think of a. I had Father Lawrence Liu on this show, who was a sure. who was yep. brilliant, right? He was raised kind of a Bible Christian, and his first experience of the mass, his very first as a say, as an early teenager, I think he was in grade six or seven at the time, he right away in the Mass, saw the book of Revelation because he was well-schooled in the Bible. He'd read his Bible by that age many times, and he immediately saw the book of Revelation taking place in front of him. But he was at a, at a Mass that was probably done pretty well for its time. right? You, you, you go to some of these, these ordinary forms of the Masses where these things are happening to make it more accessible, quote-unquote, right? And mm-hmm. you aren't going to see the book of Revelation happening there. You're going to see old right. guys with guitars or this right. really, you know, really old pastor bringing the whole youth group around the altar to, to sing and dance and, and chant and twirl around and make up their own version of the Our Father. And will I, will I weep in the pew? In the pew? Like, right. Which, but, would anyone do that with Shakespeare? Yeah, oh, yeah. well, we're going to just make it up and goof around. <laughs> no, we have to preserve the original intention of Shakespeare, even to the, the archaic language. Yeah, and when people yeah. try to modernize the language, they get mad. Think about that. We respect that. The liturgy is a pre-existing condition of heavenly realities and our job is to make that the most knowable what you're saying reminds me of uh in the thomistic tradition there are two ways of knowing one's ratio and one's intellectus do you know this well ratio if i, I hopefully correct me i would forget which is which but i think ratio is when you run around and read things you actively didactically look for understanding intellectus is knowing in the depths of your intuition 
and you maybe not read a book. So you look at the Grand Canyon and you know the awe and majesty of God. That's intellectus. You read a book about the Grand Canyon, that's ratio. So at the time of the council, they're very interested in the ratio side. Make people say the words, make people hear the words, make people sing the songs. Let's get the lessons of the liturgy kind of in the lips. And the, the intellectual side, which is awe, grandeur, numinous, participating in this cultic mystery of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That's how you know the grandeur of God. It's like going into a haunted house that's not scary. It's, you don't have the knowledge of the scariness of it. Or what if Disney World were not a world brimming with magic kingdom it was just the mediocre kingdom like who would go <laughs> and so we have something much higher than that which is a participation in this perfection and awe and grandeur of the palace of the king who welcomes us into the palace of the king so it doesn't have to look like our living room we have to feel comfortable in the chair next to god not just say oh well we're, we're not worthy so let's do our our uh, domestic liturgy down here on earth <laughs> and I think the sad thing is I have had so many listeners write in, you know, to the show who become Catholic and been discouraged pretty quickly by some pretty terrible liturgies, right? They they might read about the Mass in, in books or hear about it and, or watch some beautiful videos produced by Bishop Barron or whomever about the Mass in these really beautiful settings. And they go to their closest parish church and they find what we find, right? Some, some pretty lame liturgies. Mm -hmm. You know, I know when my, when, so I became Catholic and my wife followed along a year later, but in that interim period of that year, we were kind of discerning what to do with our family and how to, how to live as this kind of mixed family for a little bit and how that would ever work. And we were kind of touring some Catholic churches to kind of give her the flavor of what a mass was like. And I remember a few of them, actually, she was, she was pregnant and one of her first masses, she fainted in during the mass. And that was, the joke was, it was so bad. She passed out because she couldn't stand, she couldn't stand the mass. <laughs> I but know. We later learned that she faints during pregnancy quite a bit. It was, it's a common okay. for her. But at the time it was this hilarious joke we had that, yeah, it was so bad. You just, you just, you just, just passed out. Right. But you and know, it takes back to the extraordinary form right yeah. sometimes when i'm traveling i don't know what i'm going to get and i'll just look for the extraordinary form parish in town and go there because i know yeah. it's not going to be anything silly or trite or stupid even if it's not as perfect as as you know my understanding this the church teaches but you know it's safe and it would be nice if you go to any church in the country or the world and have the unity that the pope asks for in the respectful, proper, full, and solemn celebration of the liturgy. And I think that's where the extraordinary form has to teach the ordinary form, and the ordinary form has to teach the extraordinary form uh, too. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing for me is that lately, I've been getting a lot of those kind of emails, but saying, oh, but hey, then I found this parish, and it was actually an ordinary form, quote-unquote, mass, that was done really well. There was Gregorian chant, and there was the the, pre, the priest was turned the other way, and there was mm -hmm. some there was even some Latin bits to it. So I don't know if this is this is beginning. I certainly hope so that it's beginning to in, to inform better mass. Because you're right, right? You you can reliably say, "Hey, I'll, I'll go to a Latin mass when I'm out of town," because I know that there's gonna be a, that that intention that intentionality will be there, right? And that's sometimes missing from the ordinary form of the mass you get all kinds mm -hmm. of things so mm -hmm. i think we start there with with making mass more great but making it more intentional right both for maybe the person going as the as the parishioner but also for the the pastor the priest celebrating it right making really paying attention to to what the mass says it should be right could be a, a good place to start 
Yeah, and in the you know in the classic notion of beauty, beauty is the revelation of the reality of something. You know, I call it ontological reality all the time. Ontology is the study of being, and when a thing is revealed as it is in the depths of its existence, that's what we call beauty. And beauty has the compelling power to attract you. This is you know like delicious food attracts you to eat it. Beautiful things attract you to participate in them, to look at them, to see them. And so, if we constantly, what I always say is. Vatican II asked for noble simplicity because they wanted the essence of the mass to come forward without any kind of weird accretions over time. And what we give people most of the time is trashy complexity. <laughs> it's low quality. It's sentimental. It's badly done. And it's stuff that doesn't either, either doesn't belong in the mass and is imposed upon the mass or things that are not, that are not there that should be there. And nobody likes trashy complexity. Nobody likes trashy in general and complexity that obscures like painting over a diamond, you know, how are you going to, how's it going to sparkle if it's got paint on it? And so we need to get back to the essence of the thing. How Pope Francis's letter is going to do that. I don't know. All I know is I read it quickly on the day it came out and I was all worked up and I went to mass at Marytown, which is the shrine next to the seminary in Mundelein where I was visiting at the time. And I had this flash of an idea what this was about. And it was given by the Holy spirit or whatever, but it was like, these two things can't parallel forever. They have to come together, and they ha if whether Pope Francis forces this or not, uh, it's got to be done. And so one of the things I'm hoping to do here at the Center for Beauty and Culture in the spring, I'm going to call it the Misa Tradiciones Custodes. And it's going to take the quote that he gave at the end about celebrating the Mass in the traditional way with the Roman uh, canon, ad orientem, mostly in Latin, completely sung, great servers, readings in English, the uh, response, um, prayers of the faithful in English, and people speaking the words back, and to say, yeah, this can be done. If this was the real intention of the Second Vatican Council, then we haven't done it yet. You know, it's the old line. It's not that it's tried and failed, but not tried at all. Yeah. And uh, it's time. It's time to do it. Yeah, and, and to begin to to model that, right? Like That's got to be, and you're a saint for doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Let's hope it works out. Yeah. But that's got to be what's, what we do going forward. Right? If we're going to, I mean, because the last thing that, that, I, that I want, and I, I get a lot of this on the, on the feedback from the show, right, is, yeah, I went to, became Catholic, went to Mass, and it was terrible. Or mm -hmm. I'm trying to become Catholic, and I'm seeing on, on, say, Catholic Twitter or on YouTube this Latin Mass versus Novus Ordo Mass, and I, I can't figure out which one I'm supposed to go to. And they seem like to say that each of the other one is wrong, and there's this kind of liturgy wars in some cases right? neither of those things are, are are making catholics or making catholics better right the bad liturgies right. or the liturgy wars so i i think you're absolutely right and we can't have these two parallel tracks so we we gotta begin to to make mass great and make yeah and make and make it so whatever mass you go to wherever you find yourself in whatever town you're in you you can go and know that it's going to be a, a a beautiful mysterious right participatory mass that, that that draws you in right right but we've been training people for a half century now to expect in many cases kind of trite emotion driven yeah. music that's yeah. expressive of the self I mean, that's devotional music here's the interesting thing and i've said this on our podcast many times that before Vatican II, at the low mass, there was an indult, which is an exception to the rule, to sing hymns at the beginning, the middle, and the end. So entrance hymn, offertory hymn, communion hymn. Those, there are no hymns in the Missal, uh, almost none. The glory is a hymn, and there's one in the 
Triduum. But hymns are devotional songs that were permitted by exception so that people would have something to do at low mass before Vatican II. So this model of singing three hymns is actually the pre-Vatican II model. What Vatican II wanted is to sing the proper texts of the Antiphon given in the Missal. In other words, put the words of the Missal on the lips of the people because they were smart enough to do it. They were literate. They could be trained to sing. It was their inherent dignity as baptized members to say the words of the liturgy and not just be given some silly little song to sing because they're peasant farmers in you know, a rural town in France in 1600. No, no, it's the 20th century. We can sing. It's the 21st mean. century now, but back then... Um, and this was what they were hoping, that the riches of the liturgy would be given to the people, not that the sort of silly things would be substituted uh, for them. And so not every parish is ready to do that. But I don't know, the, the Holy Spirit's moving. Like we're finally getting to understand what Vatican II is about. I found this great quote, by the way. Um, I have this book here. It's called Liturgy, Life of the Church. And it was published by Virgil Michael in the 20s. And he's talking about the people who are resisting Pius X. You know, Pius X wants people to sing chant. He wants people to sing. He wants them to go to communion daily if they can. He wants them to receive First Communion. And so the, he's facing resistance. The people don't want to do what Pius X, the great reformer, wants. And uh, he quotes Cardinal Mercier, who is this um, Belgian cardinal. When our Holy Father Pius X speaks, gives an order, or simply lets his wishes be divined, all of us, must submit with the same respectful docility as if our divine Savior came back to earth were himself explaining his gospel to us. <laughs> wow, right? If people could hear Pope Francis this way and say, all right, it's not what I like. I tell everybody else to do what they don't like <laughs> because I think I'm right. I have to do this too, even if I don't like this, even if I think there were some sloppy things, and even if it was pastorally you know, difficult to swallow sometimes. If God wants this, we have to let the Holy Spirit work and give our personal preferences over and say, all right, how are we going to let the Holy Spirit use this? And I, I've chosen, it's just me, I've chosen to say, this is God saying, time to bring these two streams together let them mutually reinforce each other and uh find the essence of the liturgy again <laughs> so well said dr mcnamara i love it and i the curious thing for me is this is comes a lot in this podcast the idea of docility right this is this is the the main theme the thrust of the converts to the catholic faith that i that i talk to you know every other week or so on this show, it's always this, okay, I'm going to submit to this authority of the Catholic Church and become Catholic because I've come to this conclusion historically or theologically or however they've come to this conclusion. Sometimes really miraculous lightning bolts from the sky causes their conversion. But they ultimately say, yeah, I'm going to submit to the authority of the Church. I believe this is what it says that it is. And that extends to all parts of the Catholic life, including like decisions of the liturgy, right? It, it, in, including decisions where the Pope says, hey, we got we to gotta fix this, mm -hmm. right? That, the, the same bending of the will has to exist there too, to say, okay, right. this is a movement of the spirits. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of the way and, and believe that this is going the right direction and, and try and help in that, right? Not just and even if the Pope is wrong. Yeah. Even if the Pope is wrong, because this is not... Yeah particularly guarded by, you know, infallibility. Yeah, yeah. Even if he's wrong, God is going to work through that. And I'm not saying Francis is, but there have been, you know, questionable decisions by popes <laughs> over the centuries, <laughs> but God works through them, right? So um, 
I want to use the opportunity language and not just the anger language. Yeah. And even if you think it's not prudent, not right, God's saying, okay, take a step back, breathe. I, you know, I compare the father, uh, us to the father, like a three-year-old all the time. Three-year-olds always don't know when they're tired. They're obviously tired and they say, I'm not tired. And you're like, oh, if you would just do what I said, <laughs> you don't have to have a tantrum. I'll just put you in bed and you'll wake up happy tomorrow. I can confirm all of this. Yeah. Yes, I know you can. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes we don't know what we want, but freedom, docility means, yes, I love you, dad. I'll let you put me to bed. Yes, I don't want to go to bed. I don't even know that I'm not tired. And there's a freedom in that. It's not a misery. I'm not perfect at this. You know, I read this thing and there's certain lines that get me irritated. <laughs> but I have to check that and say, all right, how's God going to make this work? And how can I, how can I help it? Yeah. How can I help it? That's pretty amazing. And I think, you know, I, there are some pretty ugly churches out there. I'm going to tell you that, you know, this is true, right? And some pretty hard context in which to celebrate the mass or be part of the mass. But we, we can take steps to, to try and, right? Do our best in, in taking part in those situations and do our best in encouraging our priests and our pastors to, to elevate that in the way that we can, right? You can volunteer to help hold the incense and, 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 you know, wiggle it all, <laughs> wiggle it all, shake it all around, right? Mm -hmm. You can volunteer to help at the altar and to help uh, uh, sing it, learn how to learn, learn how to sing Gregorian chant off YouTube or something and, and, and begin to do your part, right? You can, you can do these things to, to help make the mass great, to, to bring you that, right? Start a podcast. Who yeah. knew, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Read a book, start a podcast. So now everybody is where they are. So some people, are, their glory days are 1978 and they want to go back to that. But uh, Or their glory days are 1878 and they want to go back to that. But the question is, what do we need now? Yeah. What does the church ask? This, this is the sure rock, right? It's the... Yeah. Yeah. The Theologia Prima, the primary theology, is contained in the liturgical books of the church and their instructions on how they're to be celebrated. So the old line, you know, say the black do the red is kind of right, right? <laughs> say the words that are there and do the instructions that they tell you on how to do what goes with them. But that's a minimum, right? That's that's like don't drive off a cliff. Just stay on the road and then experience the exhilaration of 300 horsepower turbo on a winding mountain road, which is the liturgies in inviting us into this great participatory adventure in the glory of heaven uh, and the majesty and the awesomeness of God's uh, saving act made present to us in the form of a right. And this is, this is the great mystery. This is how we celebrate the mysteries. And if it's boring, trite, banal, offensive, wrong, man, I mean, imagine if all those kids went into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory and everything tasted terrible and smelled like sewage. They'd be like, out of here, Willy. Sorry, I don't want your factory. And we wonder why people don't come back to mass. So <laughs> lovely, beautiful, attractive, and true. It might be a bad analogy. Most of those kids ended up either blown up or floating away in the sky or drowning. Well, that's right, because they all had vices. It was a morality tale. It was, wasn't it? But we have our vices too, which is I want to sing what I want to sing. I want yeah, to sit where I want to sit. I want to do what I want to do. Charlie's the one who said, I'll give it, I'll give it back to you. You know, I won't give your secret to Slugworth. And so we have to say, I won't, I won't insist on my personal uh, preference, even intellectual preference, even if you're right, even if you're right. There's some people who write some amazing scholarship on the history of liturgy and these things they want to bring back. And in many ways they're right, but you know what? It's not the time. 
Yeah. Maybe yeah. the time will come. So, you know, a movement, liturgical movement was the set of ideas before Vatican II. It just means people talking, writing. If they had podcasts back then, they would have podcasted conferences, essays, books. And then the church comes in and reforms and says, okay, we've heard all your story. We're changing the books. So the books aren't changed much yet. But who knows? Talk, think, write. Maybe in 50 years, the Pope will say, okay, I've taken taking advice from all the bishops and we need to change this or that or to make little changes uh, in the right time, you know, in God's time. It's hard. It's hard to say God's time and not my time. And I'm not good at it. I promise you I'm the worst. Of, uh, I'm not patient with bad liturgy at all uh, or badly done sacramentalized liturgy. But I guess ultimately that's where we, that's where we have to be. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, the, the church time is slow time right, is one thing we have to know and recognize. And that's, that's never a bad thing, right, to move slowly, I don't, I don't think, unless you are driving on the highway, in which case, if you're in front of me, that's a bad thing, so I'm going <laughs> to want to get it away. But it's never a bad thing to be prudent and take these things slowly rather than just ramming through a million liturgical changes, right? You mm-hmm. want to, yeah, I think, go slow. And I guess the other thing is, is the Mass is still the Mass, right? I mean, so if you are at a terrible, terrible Mass, you, and you you find yourself there on a Sunday, you, you can still give as much as you can give to that because that's still, it's still a valid mass. It's still heaven meeting earth, even if it's really bad off-key singing and terrible guitars and, and God forbid, a clown coming out once in a while. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, and you know what Colonel Ratzinger has said more than once? Um, is that we know that perfect worship is happening because Christ is the one who's doing yeah, it. Yeah. We don't have to worry that God's going to receive an improper sacrifice because Christ is the, is the liturgist. However, we can make that either less full or more full, less perfect or more perfect as something we encounter. So, yeah, you can say, all right, I, at least this is valid Eucharist, but you really want to say everything that led up to the reception of that Eucharist has made me realize the majesty of God who I am, beloved and yet a sinner, fallen and yet redeemed, and I get to anticipate my heavenly future so that when I do receive the Eucharist, it's not just like, well, I satisfied my duty to God to worship him on Sunday, Uh, but my heart is open, my mind is open, my body is surrendered, and then I'm like a dry sponge for this grace instead of an angry, distracted thinking about why the music director is an idiot and why that song is so stupid and why did the priest change the words and why is this church so ugly? You see, all those things, they're not just offensive aesthetically. They actually draw you out of prayer. They draw you out of receptivity for the grace that God wants to give. And that's why this stuff matters. A lot of liturgy people have nervous breakdowns. (laughs) Virtual Michael had a nervous (laughs) breakdown. Some other people did. Because if you really care and you have like an obsessive, a little bit of OCD streak, Man, the liturgical world is not your friend because it's never right. That's the artistic temperament generally, right? Yeah. The, artist, the artist sees perfection but can never live it. So that's why they're always slightly demoralized. But you've you got to continue being an artist, continue being a liturgical artist in that sense. Yeah, yeah. I can definitely affirm that OCD-ness in the liturgy. <laughs> oh, help me. Dr. <laughs> Dr. McNamara, this has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show again. I meant to look up your last appearance. I think it was probably 100 episodes ago, which is it was a, 2019, a, fall 2019. Oversight on my behalf. Have to have you back sooner than that next time because I absolutely love talking to you. And I know listeners love this kind of stuff. 
Uh, thank you for this conversation. Where can they go? I mentioned Literature Guys podcast. It is a fantastic podcast. You guys this season are going. Well, where are you going this season? Why don't you tell tell me? Well, with that inspiration, <laughs> with that inspiration from Pope Benedict to celebrate the Mass as it's meant to be celebrated, we're actually walking through the Mass, not so much from the abstract, but with the Missal. So we started with Traditionus Custodis, what it says. Then I did a little thing on the architecture because this is the first thing you see. What is the church as an image of the mystical body of Christ? Then what are the ministers? What are the vestments? What do the rituals mean? What should the opening song be? You know, all that kind of thing. So that's how season six will play out. So people can, as you said, what do we do? Well, learn what they ought to be. And I hear from priests every now and then, you know, to say, oh, I take notes from your podcast sometimes. And that's the best thing in the world. Yeah. And now you've mentioned how you get letters from people who convert because of your podcast. And to hear that a priest or a music director is actually making their liturgy better because they hear a podcast just you can just die happy in your bed when you hear stuff like <laughs> don't, that. Please don't. But No, okay. not yet. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, Benedictine College here, we have the Center for Beauty and Culture, which yeah. I've been asked to start. And there's a web page uh, for that if you go to benedictine.edu. And we're going to be doing some, hopefully, some really uh, great things uh, this semester, um, partly to talk about what culture is. It's this bank of the faith that's handed on from one generation to the next and what beauty is, what liturgy is. So. The, we're making some videos that explain some great pieces of art that'll be coming out pretty soon, and then of course the podcast Liturgy Guys is is hosted there. That's fantastic. And I always mention I teach I teach RCIA at my, at my parish for new Catholics, and I always mention from from you the the door of the Catholic Church being being important. I know I know that you at some point mentioned the door being this substantial thing that should be hard to open and kind of a liturgical thing, and mm-hmm. everyone always goes, "Oh, the door! I found the door, and the door was I could it was hard <laughs> to open." You were right. And I said, "Yeah, that was that was Doctor McNamara." Yeah, <laughs> I call it a portal. Right? Yeah. A door is a hole in the wall. A portal is a hole in the wall. That's ornamented and rich to tell you how important it is to go in that door. So liturgy should be that too. Liturgy is not a Eucharist dispensing machine. It tells you how important receiving Eucharist is and the great immensity of what that's what that all is. And that's this is not fussy, highbrow, you know, ritualistic stuff. This is making the essence of the liturgy knowable to us so we can be transformed by it. And that's what God wants, right? This at the end of the days. This is the good news. I've come to save you, glorify you, bring you into the dialogue in the family of the Trinity. This is the method I've given. The better you do it, the better it's going to work. <laughs> I could talk to you for years, Dr. McNamara. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much for being here. I want to say God bless you and the fantastic work you're doing for the church and the liturgy and all of us out here. Uh, and, and thanks so much for being here on the show once yeah. again. And thanks for all you do too. When I was on last time, I had never heard of your program. Now it's my favorite podcast <laughs> i think that's a glowing endorsement yeah really well, sure. it was new when when you were first here you only had a few episodes that's i hadn't true. heard of it yet after that i was like this guy's doing good oh. stuff so well, god bless you for that thank you i'm gonna record that for a quote and play it when i'm feeling down thanks okay. so much Well, I checked. I went and I checked. It was exactly 99 episodes ago that I spoke to Dr. Dennis McNamara first on this show. 
I guessed 100. Ah, oh, it's pretty close. That's pretty amazing. What a fantastic conversation. One of my favorite people to talk to. I know, I know I say that sometimes, but really, he's such a good guy. And such fun having these conversations. So really, thank you to him and thank you to you for listening to this show. Check out the show notes for this show at thecordialcatholic.com or wherever you find your podcast. They're there as well for links to Dr. McNamara's fantastic work that he's doing as well. We're on social media, Instagram and Twitter at Cordial Catholic. We're on YouTube at youtube.com slash thecordialcatholic. Please head over there and subscribe to our channel if you can. That helps to grow that channel there and get more people seeing those videos and this content. Email me. Please reach out cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I love hearing your feedback. I get right back to all of it as soon as I can, which takes some time sometimes, but I love hearing from you guys and it's such a joy and pleasure to read your emails. Please do connect if you can. Uh, Patreon.com slash Cordial Catholic to support this show on a monthly basis. Patrons get all kinds of different rewards, so please head over there and check those out or paypal.me slash Cordial Catholic for a one-time donation. And thank you to those people who are helping to underpin this show with your financial support. It's so, so valued. Please do subscribe to or follow and rate and review this show wherever you find it if you can tell a friend word of mouth is a great way of spreading this podcast and the mission here and know that I'm praying for you please pray for me too guys and I'll talk to you again next week thanks for being here and God bless This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy a special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.